Well, I do want to make mention of our fathers today. I want to say happy Father's Day to everyone here who serves in that role. Thank you so much for your service to your family, your love for your children, and we just praise God for you on this special day. Well, 12 days ago, our country celebrated um, on June 6th what was perhaps the greatest invasion in the history of the world. Many people regard D-Day on June 6, 1944, to be the single greatest military invasion the world has ever seen. It was certainly, it was certainly the largest amphibious military invasion that the world has ever seen to this day. It is hard to imagine that on June 6, 1944, you had over 150,000 troops set across the English Channel for the beaches of Normandy. That's like a medium-sized American city heading over. Do you know how many ships were involved? Over 5,000 ships were deployed across the English Channel, focusing on five different sectors. The, the scope of the operation the complexity of the operation, truly incredible. And it was desperately needed. The Allies needed a second front to the war. The Allies could not allow Nazi Germany to concentrate all of their forces on the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union at that time was our ally and they needed help. Also, it was important that we break what was called the Atlantic Wall. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Atlantic Wall. That uh, Erwin Rommel, the Nazi general, had built fortifications over 2,400 miles long the French coast. It was imperative that we broke through that Atlantic Wall. Like I said, the date that was selected for the invasion was June, well, I didn't say this yet. The date that we did, that we held the invasion was June 6th. It was originally scheduled for June 5th. But because of bad weather leading up to the day, the Allies didn't know if we'd be able to go at all. Eisenhower thought he was going to have to cancel the invasion. But in, 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 in a remarkable turn of events, like a John Clancy, or Tom Clancy, sorry, that's his cousin, John Clancy, <laughs> the better known as Tom. Um, Allied weather forecasters forecasted a 24-hour interlude of fairer weather that would allow the Allies to invade. Just a brief interlude that would allow a pivot in the war. And that's exactly what happened, and the rest is history. You know, Revelation chapter 7 is an interlude of sorts. It is a literary interlude. It serves as a break in the action, a breath, a pause, okay? It offers new and fresh perspective, okay, as, as the events of Revelation are unfolding. It's a literary interlude. There are four in Revelation. This is the first and it's glorious, and it's amazing, and it's intended to heighten the tension 
as the great tribulation is unfolding on the church, we take a break. We take a pause. We see what the Lord is doing. We get things from a heavenly perspective. So with that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our summer series through the book of Revelation. This morning we're going to look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. I will tell you there's a panel 6, but I think you'll appreciate it by the time we're done. But for now, we're going to read 7, verses 1 through 12. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Okay, before we continue, a little historical context, a very brief review to kind of remember and remind us where we are in the book of Revelation. If you remember a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, back to Revelation chapter 5, it's the great throne room of heaven, the center of the universe, as it were, and in the right hand of him who sat on the throne was something very significant. Do you remember 
what was in the right hand of him, the Ancient of Days, the Heavenly Father, what was in the right hand of him who was on the throne? Do you remember? There was a scroll in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Do you remember what that scroll, scroll represented? Okay. Just wait for that just for a moment. Do you remember that no one could open this scroll? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was, quote, found worthy to open the scroll. Do you remember what John did when no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open this scroll? Do you remember what John did? He wept. And the reason he wept is because that scroll represented redemptive history. That scroll represented the future of the church from Jesus' ascension to his return. And the fact that no one was found worthy to open the scroll, John interpreted as the future is uncertain. The future is in doubt. The future redemption of God's people is in question. So John wept. And this is dramatic. And then something happened. One strode forth. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the son and heir of David, the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth, he was worthy to open the scroll and to open the seals. It was sealed with seven seals. Dave last week preached a wonderful sermon on Revelation chapter 6. As six of the seals were opened, and as each seal was opened, that was more judgment, more difficulty, more tribulation that was poured out on the church. And it culminated with the great judgment. The judgment was so bad and so awesome and so overwhelming that the people of the earth were looking for somewhere to hide. They wanted the rocks and the mountains to fall down on them to escape from this judgment. The last verse of Revelation chapter 6 says this, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's the question that the interlude seeks to answer. The great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? And so in the midst of this great unfolding tribulation and the judgment to come, Revelation chapter 7 answers, who can stand? So let's look at this. Let me read verses 1 through 5 again. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. What were they doing? Holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels. They had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. They had the power to kind of bring forth tribulation, saying to these angels, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. You can't lay waste. You can't unfold all these judgments until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number 
of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So the only thing between the people of God and these judgments, this ultimate judgment, is this seal that's placed on their forehead. Now we said that the book of Revelation is like a picture book. It's a book full of symbolism and signs. And so when people are sealed before the Lord their God, it's like God puts his mark on them. Like in the ancient Near East, if a king sends a letter, he'll take his signet ring, he'll dip it in wax, and then he will affix that ring, that wax seal, to a letter indicating this has the authority of the king. This comes in the king's name. It could also indicate ownership of the king. So these seals that are placed on the forehead, that's symbolic of the Lord saying, these are mine. These are set apart. It's not that these won't go through the tribulation and difficulty, but they will be saved in the end. Now this 144,000 number, this 144,000 number is a subject of great debate and can be very confusing and extremely difficult to interpret. So on Friday, I played golf for the first time in a while. And um, I was reminded while playing golf on Friday why I don't play golf very much, and I limit basically my athletic outlet to the tennis court. To say that it was a poor exhibition of golf would be a tremendous understatement. In fact, the people that were with me wanted a refund because they had paid for my green fee <laughs> afterward. So in the midst of this very difficult day, there was lots of prayer, lots of self-control, lots of kind of trying to center myself. One of the foursome, who I won't name, Stephen Thornton, came up to me... <laughs> And he wanted to provide some advice. He wanted to provide some help. And when he does that, you know there's a problem, okay? And Lord knows Stephen's gotten a lot of golf lessons over the years. So he should be able to provide me some feedback, some techniques, right? Some help. You know, just maybe one or two things to, to right the ship. And so he said, David, here's what I want you to do. He said, David, I want you to replace your left shoulder with your right shoulder, okay? I want you to replace your left shoulder with your right shoulder. And I looked at him and I said, I have no idea what that means. What does that mean? Do, do any of you know what replacing your left shoulder with your right shoulder means? Like Jonathan Smith, he kind of looked like he's dazed and confused. Jonathan, that's what I was. I was like, what does that even mean? How do you interpret that? How do you translate that? He goes, view your body like a hinge, your shoulders like a hinge. I'm like, that's no better. <laughs> Absolute true story. That's what I have in my head when I go to the tee box. I had replacing my left shoulder with my right shoulder and operating on a hinge. In front of the three other guys, I went last, always. And you have three people watching you in abject humiliation. I barely made contact with the ball. It rolled probably 10 yards away, and I looked at Stephen. I said, thank you very much. I didn't know how to interpret that, obviously. 
The 144,000 is a subject of great debate and can be hard to understand. Not as hard to understand as what Stephen told me, but it could be close. There's an interpretive key here that helps us to interpret and understand who this 144,000 refers to. Because initially, there are some interpretive camps, our, our precious friends, our dear friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We haven't even gone into this because it can give people tired head when you get into the book of Revelation and different interpretative approach. Um, there's a view called dispensationalism that precious brothers and sisters in Christ hold, and, and it, would, it thinks the 144,000 are literally ethnic Jews that the Lord is going to set apart. But then there's a covenantal understanding that would be more representative of our denomination. And so this is like a little inner squad um, conversation. We love our friends at DTS. We love our Bible church friends. At the end of the day, they are our best friends, and we are their best friends. But we have a little bit of a different view here. So if you look here, look at verse 4. John says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed, set apart from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now let's look at verse 9. After this, I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And so the way we understand this is initially John hears something. He hears this 144,000. Then he turns around and looks. And whereas before they were described as the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, now he looks and he sees that that 144,000, what does that number represent in Revelation? That number represents an uncountable multitude. It represents the full role of God's church in the Old and New Covenant. The full number of God's elect. Okay? The church is the new Israel of God. The church has been grafted in to the people of God. And so now, instead of there being an ethnic geopolitical people, there is a spiritual Israel composed of people all over the world, from every tribe and tongue and people group. So he hears this. Like, why is it described in one section as 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel? And why is it described in another section as this uncountable multitude, including Jews and Gentiles? It's just showing the unity of the church, old and new. An uncountable number to look with me. Look at what this great throng of people is saying in verse 10. They're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And what are they wearing in verse 9? What are they wearing? They're wearing white robes. If you go down to verse 14, which is, uh, I guess that's on panel six. Those white robes have been washed in red blood. Isn't that interesting? Somehow, red blood makes these dark, 
stained robes, white, spotless, and clean. Why are they wearing white robes? Because this is a kingdom of priests that are going to serve in the tabernacle in the presence of God forever and ever and ever and ever. And so what we're seeing in Revelation week after week is allusion back to the Old Testament, allusion back to the Old Testament, allusion back to the Old Testament. All of God's plan, Old Covenant and New, are brought together and unfolding. So, in the new heavens and the new earth, the full multitude of the people of God wearing these white robes, serving as priests in this heavenly tabernacle, the new heavens and the new earth, they're worshiping. They also have palm branches in their hands. Again, notice how this connects the Bible together. So when Jesus was riding in on the foal of a donkey during the day of the triumphal entry, what were the people waving? They were waving palm branches. Was that something new and innovative on that day? No. Why were the people waving palm branches before Jesus? What were they saying to him? You are Messiah. You are the conquering king. In the Old Testament, when a conquering king would return to Jerusalem, they would wave palm branches. You're our king, okay? You're the anointed one. Jesus is the true Messiah. The people waved palm branches. They sang their hosannas. Here they are again, all of us. All of us. Every one of us who knows the Lord Jesus will be there with our palm branches in our beautiful spotless robe ascribing to him. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Look at verse 11. Go back to verse 11. This is an uncountable multitude who've been made clean by the life and death, the blood and righteousness of the Lamb who sits on the throne. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. So in your mind's eye, remember what we said? This is the center of heaven. You have concentric circles surrounding the throne. On the outer rim, this outer circle, uncountable multitudes, the people of God. Then you have angels. Then you have the 24 elders. Then you have the four creatures. What are they saying in verse 12? Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And sometimes you'll hear me say at the end of a sermon or something, amen and amen. Many preachers utilize that device from this text. It starts with amen. It ends with amen. It's a way of saying with power and authority, Lord, so be it. Let it be so. Amen and amen. So what is this a fulfillment of in the Old Testament? The Abrahamic covenant, where through the work of a future redeemer, the entire world would be blessed. What is this a fulfillment of in the new covenant? The great commission. Go make disciples of whom? All nations. Teaching and baptizing. That's what's happening here. This is who is saved in the midst of the great tribulation. Dave explained it last week so well. So, take a sip of your coffee. Relax, okay? This, this can be kind of hard to navigate, but... Before I came to 
like before I'd heard about covenant theology, the Reformed faith, I was more dispensational in understanding. And the Great Tribulation was limited to like a seven-year period of time. But without explaining all the details, according to covenantal theology, the Tribulation begins at Jesus' ascension, and the church is going to encounter difficulty and opposition, trials and troubles all through the church age until Jesus comes again. And so right now, we are in a period of tribulation. And sometimes the tribulation is going to be greater and sometimes less intense. But the church of living God and even the world is experiencing difficulty. And this was written to encourage the church that even though you're going to go through it, you're going to be saved in the end. You're going to be preserved and protected in the end. This is in no way an encouragement that you won't go through it. Everyone in this room will experience the birthing pangs of the tribulation. Unless the Lord comes again, every one of us is going to die. Every single one of us. Death is an enemy. It's not a friend. As wonderful as it is on the other side, the prospect of death, losing loved ones, we are going through the tribulation, and even in our nation, I think we feel it a little bit more and more day by day, how the church is more and more um, being viewed with suspicion and distrust. Okay, panel 6, Revelation 7, verses 13 through 17, and we'll begin our descent to land the plane. Here we go. Like I said, this, this interlude is intended to provide hope and encouragement and, and the tension, the narratival tension of the text is increasing. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, well, sir, you know, of course he did. And he said to me, these are the ones. This is describing you. This is describing me. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Look at what they're doing in verse 15. Therefore, this is the, this is the full number of the elect, all of those who have been redeemed. Therefore, they are before the throne. Imagine the center of the universe. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Do you see the Old Testament allusions there? Do you see the entire Bible coming together in these texts? Let's look again. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. Where? In his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them. Do you know the Greek word for shelter there is the same word for tabernacle? Okay. He who sits on the throne will shelter them. We're going to be in his temple. We're going to be sheltered with his presence. Like this is amazing, my friends. 
The Garden of Eden was a kind of tabernacle. It was a place where Adam walked with God where and when? In the garden, when? In the cool of the day. Adam and Eve, Eve had unmediated access to the Lord their God. Like God dwelt with them in this amazing garden paradise. Of course, Adam sinned. That, that dwelling, that presence was interrupted. The entire Bible from that moment on leads to this moment where the presence of God in an unmediated way will be restored to his people. So in the Old Testament, through the ministry of Moses, what did God do? He had them make a what? A tabernacle. What was in the tabernacle? The presence of the living God in a unique way with his people. That wasn't true anywhere else. God tabernacled with his people. That's what the temple meant. What did Jesus do? What does the Bible say? Jesus came and he what among us? He dwelt among us. It's the same Greek word. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt in our midst. In the new heavens and the new earth, which is what this is talking about, he will shelter us with his presence. He will tabernacle with us in the new heavens and the new earth, which is the Garden of Eden, but infinitely better, where we will enjoy the presence of God forever and ever. It is beyond description. I love the way it's described. He will shelter us with his very presence. And what does that mean, verse 16? Another way of describing being in his presence is they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them. Imagine living in the ancient Near East, and we didn't have air conditioning and, 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 and homes like we have today, and walking through the desert and the scorch of the noonday sun, it would be so oppressive. That's over. There'll be no more thirst. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Why? This goes back to the confession of faith that Nate led us through. All the threads of Scripture coming together. Why? Verse 17, why? Why is this true? How is God's presence with us? How are we preserved and protected? Why? Verse 17, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. I mean, unifying the Bible beginning to end. Psalm 23, full fruition. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, life eternal, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a picture book. These are symbols these symbols can't convey the beauty, the enormity, the wonderment of what awaits the people of God. This interlude is telling you and me, hold on. As the seals are opened, as the tribulation unfolds, it's frightening, it's sobering, it's intimidating. Never lose sight of the end. Never lose sight of the end. This is what's coming for the people of God. Two quotes before we close. 
On June 2nd of 1861, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon titled, The Sweet Uses of Adversity, like how adversity trains the people of God. In this sermon, he referred to Psalm 56, 8, one of my favorite verses of the Old Testament, which says, Lord, you have kept account of my tossings, meaning tossing and turning in bed. You're aware of my anxiety. You're aware of my pain. You're aware of what I worry about. You have kept account of my tossings, and you have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That is so beautiful. God in the Old Testament is said to have a tear bottle, as it were, that he holds up to our cheek and collects every single tear, indicating he values it, he cherishes it, he has sympathy for it, he's going to make it right. In Revelation 7, the way it's said there is he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. No more difficulty, no more pain. Richard Baxter, a prominent English Puritan, had this to say. He said, heaven, it is not here. Don't ever think that heaven is here. It's there. If we were given all we wanted here, our hearts would settle for this world rather than the next one. God is forever. He is luring us up and away from this world, wooing us to himself and his still invisible kingdom where we will certainly, where we will certainly find what we so keenly long for. That's what Revelation chapter 7 has to say to his people. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that heaven is not here. Lord, we thank you that it is there. Father, we thank you for not giving us everything we want here. Thank you for not allowing us to settle for this world rather than the one you have prepared for those you have sealed with your very name. Thank you for luring us up and away from this one, wooing us to yourself and to your still invisible kingdom where we will certainly find what we so keenly long for. Heavenly Father, may this interlude give us the hope and the courage that we so desperately need. Help us to place all our faith, all our hope, all our love to the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. In his matchless name we pray, amen.